Hello and welcome to another episode of Future Insight Podcast. I'm Dean Cantu from Bradley University and I'm pleased to introduce to you uh, today's guest, uh, Dr. Lori Russell Chapin, who is a uh, professor of counseling and co-director of the Center for Collaborative Brain Research at Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois. Welcome, Lori. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excellent. We want to talk today uh, about a number of topics, but uh, but first and foremost uh, uh, is uh, is neurocounseling. But if, if you could start, Lori, and just tell us a little bit about uh, your background and uh, and how you got to this point where you are a full professor here uh, in the uh, department. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got we've got half an hour, uh, so uh, but just a little bit about the background and how that kind of informed or guided you to this point uh, where you are uh, engaged in in particularly engaged in teaching uh, and uh, researching neurocounseling. Sure, thanks. Um, well, I've been here thirty two years, so that's why I ask you how much time we have. But um, I love teaching graduate counseling courses, and I've been telling my students for years that the more that we know about the brain, it's going to change and impact how we do counseling. Well, the time's arrived. And with functional MRIs, you know, magnetic resonant imaging, with brain scans, with EEGs, we can look at the brain, and this is what I think, this is my pet peeve in life, Dean. I promise I'll get to your question. But um, you go to a pulmonologist and they look at your lungs. And you go to a cardiologist and they look at your brain, I mean your, your um, heart, but you go to a counselor, a social worker, psychologist, psychiatrist, and they don't look at anything. So that's my pet peeve. So we have this thing now. We can look at the brain. And so I teach my graduate counseling students now. You know, I think it's remiss not to use some of the things we have, the tools we have to look at the brain. And so um, a lot of my work now is doing 19-channel EEGs so I can look at the 19 channel just means I can look at you. I can put a brain cap on your head and I can look at every brain wave in your head and I can see what's working well, Dean, and I can see all the wonderful things that's going well and I can look at some of the things that aren't going well. And we know that all of us are dysregulated because we've lived life. And so having this, I guess I'd say, quantitative data allows us to do better treatment plans. So that's kind of where I'm at now. But I've been telling my students, you know, once we know this material, it's going to change how we do counseling. So it has. And now I know that neurocounseling, which is bridging brain behavior, now I know that so many of our mental health symptoms have physiological underpinnings. And we're remiss not to look at those. I used this example in class last Thursday. Um, I had a young woman come to me, <coughs> excuse me, um, very suicidal. Probably I was her fifth or sixth counselor, and all of them had been helpful, but she was still suicidal. And her mom was just a wreck. And so this can sound so naive, but I said to her mom, when was the last time she had a, a physical? Well, she hasn't had one yet. I said, I'm not going to work with her until I know how her physiology is functioning. Well, lo and behold, she had thyroid problems. So once we can regulate some of those things, then I can do really good counseling. So my journey has just evolved like everything else. Um, 
like I said, I've been at Bradley for 32 years. And I think knowing more about the brain makes us all more efficacious as counselors or as social workers or as psychologists, whomever. So uh, that's a little bit about how my journey and how I got here. Absolutely, absolutely. In, in one of the uh, one of the uh, articles that that you uh, uh, that you've authored, you talk about trying to. It allows you to treat clients more holistically. Yes. Um, and and it's if you if you if you take neurocounseling uh, and you you juxtapose it, if you will, uh, with what was happening prior to uh, the nineteen nineties, I think is where you go yeah. back and kind of trace the genesis. Yeah. What? How are we in a better place now that we have neurocounseling uh, and neuroscience to guide what we do in, in counseling? Well, I think the more you have quantitative data, though, the more you can take the qualitative and the quantitative together and build a whole picture. Without that quantitative data, I think it's kind of like a shot in the dark a bit. And so I, and neuroscience has been around for years, um, but now we're integrating that into our curricula. We're integrating that into our conceptualized pieces integrating that into our diagnosis. Biofeedback's been around for a while too, but I'm doing now something called neurofeedback, which allows me to, once I see how the brain's dysregulated, now I can actually train the brain to get regulated again through operant classical conditioning. It's so incredible. You have a computerized software and it gives the client feedback and the brain is retrained. So I think that's how, why we're in a better place. Absolutely. And in, in, in our, our podcast, Future Insight, we look at, uh, at K-12 um, students, but we also look at that transition to, uh, uh, to college and success in college. So in particular, you write a lot about you know, whether it's students uh, or children with ADHD uh, mm -hmm. or clients with addiction disorders. In particular, if you look at that, uh, you know, that, that group of students, that demographic, if you will, from uh, certainly from middle school, high school, up through college, um, what, what, how does this inform us, neurocounseling, particularly with that target group? Yeah. Well, we, we know so much, Dean, now that we didn't know before, but, and you're going to get me off in one of my pet peeves, another one of my pet peeves, but um, one of the things we know is to function at a peak performance state. We need to be using really wonderful alpha waves. These are low, slow waves, about 8 to 12 hertz. And we know developmentally, those certainly change as we get older. But for that demographic you're talking about, if these kids are not exercising, they're on social media 12 hours a day, it takes that lovely alpha wave and it moves it down to about 8 hertz. And so therefore, you can call it whatever you want, a couch potato, um, lethargic, that's what happens to our kids. So we really need, we know that social media is, has a wonderful impact, but we also know it's harmful. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So <clears throat> with, with, I'll give you an example of ADHD. A lot of the children that, with whom I'm working have really high theta waves. Theta waves are those lovely waves that let us kind of drowse and they let us be creative. But if you have too much of those and you have low alpha and not enough healthy beta, you might have really overactivated beta, you're never going to attend in the classroom. So I can do neurofeedback and regulate those students so that they are where, where we want them to be, about 10 hertz and low beta. 
which would be about 12 to 15 hertz. But that's why we're not, these kids are struggling and we're not helping them. And here's another pet peeve. You know, we teach in classrooms. We sit a lot. It's the worst thing we can do to get our brain moving and our body moving. We should be doing more things with balls and movement and let kids run around rather than letting them sit in a circle and, and sit in a chair. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You talk about how neurocounseling is helping us to, it's bridging our brain to behavior. You talk about, you know, biofeedback and mindfulness training, um, some of the strategies, things that, they, that counselors can deploy as a result of that. Are there other things as well that when you get this kind of data on, on clients that it allows us to do? Yes. Um, I was telling this to a group of graduate students a couple of weeks ago. Not only do I make everybody have a physical when they come to see me, I told you about that, but I teach diaphragmatic breathing to every client who comes to my office. That, so we know with peak performance too, lovely 10 hertz, we know we should be about 91 degrees skin temp, and we should be breathing about like five breaths up, five breaths down at least um, six times. We know, we know what helps people but we don't teach it. And that's what we should be trying to do is teach those kind of skills. Skin temp is just amazing to me. Um, I've had so many clients come to my office and I had this, it just fascinates me. The person came in and said, I have poor circulation. And he or she might've had that. But I taught them skin temp and diaphragmatic breathing. They were able to raise their skin temp. Remember I said 91 degrees. They were able to raise their skin temp from 80 degrees to 91 degrees. And they were just astounded that they could do that. And so it was so interesting. It was like they were skipping out of my office going, well, if I can control my skin temp and I can control my breathing, gosh, what else can't I control? I mean, maybe I can control a lot of our things. So teaching this teaches people, I like to call it an intrinsic locus of control where they can control. I mean, we, we rely so much on externals, medication, and I'm not saying it's all bad but medication, tell, having someone tell me what to do. But we have so much we can do internally that really helps people have that internal locus of control. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Right. And there are little things. You, you, you gave you, in one uh, Counseling uh, Today article, you, uh, uh, you talked about a fun example of neurocounseling is, is the biofeedback temperature control of nail polish. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, that, that is super. You know, I don't know about for guys, but I don't want to be have a gender issue here but um there's it's just it's like in the olden days of my age anyway we used to have mood rings right you know, so you would right. put the ring on and as you raised your skin temp the the mood ring would change right well so does the nail polish so with the nail polish if you can get if you're so if you think about when you're stressed the blood's not flowing freely through the veins so everything's constricted and everything's cold but with this lovely nail polish, what happens is it actually changes colors as I get to 91 degrees. And I think it's a great tool because I wear it often. I can just look down and go, oh, I need to start breathing. Right. And so there's these little tricks, I guess, that we can use to help people. Absolutely. And maybe they're not tricks, they're interventions. Right. Tools. Right. Tools. Uh, tell me a little bit uh, about the uh, 
Uh, I know that there's a, a couple of courses in particular in the, uh, the curriculum uh, of the, uh, of the uh, graduate program that you teach. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is, uh, is, is called neurocounseling, bridging brain and behavior, and the other one is brain-based counseling interventions. Could you talk a little bit about what, uh, what type of, 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 of knowledge, skill set you're trying to, uh, to build in individuals that are in uh, the graduate degree program uh, uh, relative to, uh, to neurocounseling? So, you know, so we have one of, the, one of the loveliest programs in the nation because we're focusing on neurocounseling and neuroscience. And the skills that these students leave, I find this fascinating. I love to start doing this, but if I had students, I gave students a case study, and I said, tell me what you think. And they'd give me a diagnosis, probably from the DSM-5. But if I teach them all these body kind of physiology techniques, they look at the system, as you said, holistically, and you can never go back. Once you look at a person as a whole, you see things differently. So these students have to have a good understanding of the brain, neuroanatomy, physiology. Um, <clears throat> we li- I like to call them, um, I didn't coin this, but therapeutic lifestyle changes. We need to be teaching people about things like sleep hygiene. I mean, that's one of the most essential things we can do. And none of us, probably do it really well. We need to teach people about the gut-brain axis because we now know so much. I mean, I think this is so fascinating. Most people, if I ask them, where do you think serotonin is manufactured, they'll say the brain. Actually, almost all of the serotonin is created in your gut. So what you eat makes a difference. Mm. And so we need to teach people about this lovely system that we have and if we could teach them to do that, and skills around that, even like the other courses, 608 brain-based approaches, meditation, mindfulness, understanding attention, just those kind of skills are gonna make a world of difference for people just in everyday living. And those are the, so I don't want people to come to me for counseling forever. I wanna teach them the skills and let them go off and use them so they don't have to come back to counseling. That's what exactly. I think we're trying to do. Exactly. That's great. That's great. What about your work, uh, Lori, with the uh, as the co-director of the Center for uh, Collaborative Brain Research? Could you give us a little insight in terms of what uh, what type of work you do there, and and, and the contribution uh, the I think you call it the CCBR yeah. makes to the uh, to the counseling community. So we we've been trying to do this for years, but in 2010 we were able to get this lovely partnership among Bradley, OSF St. Francis Hospital which is a large hospital in our area, um, an Illinois Neurological Institute. And it has two main goals. Um, the, the first goal, primary goal, is I want to have enough funding to create, I think, cutting-edge functional magnetic resonance imaging brain research. And since 2010, we've finished eight research projects. We just funded uh, one more from, they just gave $24,000 to a project um, just last April, so that'll be the ninth one. So that's one of our main goals. But the, the other goal, I think, is to give back to the community and pe- to people, kind of like what you're doing with the podcast, and teach people how to live well. And, and the more we know about the brain, it's our final frontier. The more we know about the brain, the more we can live effectively and efficiently. So one of the things we do, the, the center is self-supporting unfortunately. And um, so every year we put on a super brain summit 
and this year we're doing one. Um, this is our fifth one. We've done actually 27 alumni events, which I think is remarkable. But um, this is our fifth Super Brain Summit. If there is any proceeds, all of them go back into the center to fund new proposals, which I love. Uh, this year we're bringing in Dr. Dan Siegel. Um, I love this event because not only do we do what the mission of the CCBR is to bring people into the community and teach them about health and brain, and brain health. Um, so my, my big other pet peeve, I've been telling all my pet peeves, <laughs> one is that people call, you know, that we talk about mental illness. Why not talk about brain illness right. and brain health? That's what it is. And so we're going to teach people all about these new things. With Dr. Siegel coming in, he's going to talk about um, mindfulness, the power of presence. And he is just a guru, international guru. But what I love about this conference is people can come attend in person. They could do live video streaming because Bradley has great IT I technology. And, or they can do the events recorded after, after it's all over. We get CEUs to everybody. Um, but more importantly, it's a way to get people together to collaborate, communicate, and to share cutting edge information. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm really excited about it. It sounds great. Uh, I know with your work uh, in, in neurocounseling, uh, you uh, you played a key role in the establishment of the uh, of the neurocounseling interest uh, network, uh, which is was approved uh, in 2015 by the American Counseling Association. Uh, uh, could you talk a little bit about that network yeah. and 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 the how it's a key resource for other counselors? So I'm I'm very excited about this, but. Um, the American Counseling Association is our, our primary association, professional association. They have about 55,000 members, and um, we now have about 550 members in the Neural Counseling Network. And so what we can do is share information to everybody um, at the ACA conference coming up. We'll get together and talk about what do we need to do next. And so it's just a great resource for people to who don't have that information, who could talk and share other ideas about neurocounseling and neuroscience. Outstanding, outstanding. Uh, the, uh, again, the audience for Future Insight uh, are individuals uh, that have uh, an interest in K-12 education and transitioning from, from high school to, uh, to higher education, and then uh, success, retention and success mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in colleges and universities all the way through to degree completion, yeah. as well as individuals that are transitioning from, uh, from high school into careers. Um, so when you look at that and knowing who our listeners are, um, what do you think, uh, or how do you think that, that your work and the work of others in neuroscience um, uh, is informing them in terms of their the key role they play, whether as yeah. as, as teachers, as counselors, yeah. or folks at the at the higher education level, as professors and advisors. Yeah. Uh, you know, how is this uh, is this helping us uh, to do be a better a, job of what we do in our yeah. roles? Well, so I think it's so relevant, and I think it's applicable because, and I said this earlier, if we don't understand the brain, how can you teach students? I mean. How, if you are a principal, if you don't understand the brain, how do you lead your staff? And, and more importantly, how do we teach our students to become efficient? That's the thing I love about EEGs that I'm doing. I can see which neurons are firing too fast and too slow. I can see 
what part what parts of the brain are talking to each other and students mostly are inefficient because we're not talking to each other the parts of the brain are not talking to each other so I am probably making this sound too simple Dean but it's so relevant because how can we do our job if we don't know about this lovely three pound organ I mean how do we we know it has neuroplasticity I think so much of the stuff which means you know we're building new neurons all the time but I think we do a lot of things to do negative plasticity rather than positive plasticity and we don't want to be doing that to our students right so to me it's just critical information to share with educators absolutely and talk a little bit I know you just uh, you just uh, integrated some new technology the oculus Ooh. quest uh, virtual reality uh, into your curriculum and I know technology in particular from your perspective and from the perspective of neuroscience uh, in the brain sure. it's a, it's a dual-edged sword yeah. because you know gamification and in the always-on generation and the role that, yeah. that gaming plays in their lives can be uh, can, can play a negative yeah. role but I also know that the technology though yeah. particularly you know what you're doing mm -hmm. you know in, in terms of virtual reality uh, you know it, it, it has a positive effect as well oh. in terms of our understanding particularly yeah. of the brain I think what's so cool and I, I think I told you this but last summer my spouse and I got to go to Marquette University in Milwaukee and uh, we went to a brain dissection class that's where I first saw the oculus quest and the headsets and there was no you know I've been studying the brain for years but to actually hold and cut an amygdala in your hand and, and go, that's the amygdala? That's what does fight, flight, or freeze? That's so cool. It's the same, you know, not everybody's gonna go to a brain dissection class. They probably couldn't stand it, but, um, <laughs> but it's the same thing with virtuality. Finally, you can walk through the brain and go, that's an amygdala. I maybe don't get to see it and touch it, but you kind of touch it because you're, you're out there and I don't know, Virtual reality, virtual reality land, but um, so I think it helps us make education more tangible because sometimes the brain is so intangible. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, is there anything else uh, that we haven't uh, discussed that you think our listeners uh, uh, might want to, to hear about, uh, in, in, in whether it's neurocounseling, but just our counseling writ large, uh, and particularly knowing that we're, we're, we're looking uh, yeah. through the lens of K-12 and higher education? Yeah. You know, I, I'm so biased, Dean, but I would say continue to promote counseling because our, our lifestyle is so is so hampered I think by social media it's got good things but as you said there's some bad things and I think that we are becoming more disconnected as a society rather than connected I see it sometimes in my students papers I see it in how we talk to one another so people become more I think isolated so if you see somebody who needs counseling say something and refer them to a counselor or another other helping professionals um, we need, to, we need to get rid of this, any stigma of counseling because it could re, really make the difference between someone having a life and someone excelling in school. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, again, I want to thank Dr. Lori Russell Chapin for joining us today on uh, this episode of Future Insight. And, uh, and again, thank you, uh, Dr. Lori, for all that you do. Well, thank you, Dean, for having me, and thank you for this lovely podcast. I, um, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Excellent. Thank you.